Good morning, everybody. Great to see you guys this morning. Hey, true story. When I was a freshman in high school, our campus had a big cement slab in the middle of the campus. It was creatively named the slab. And um, it's where all the students would hang out at lunchtime and break and just, you know, eat and visit and all that kind of stuff, just chill. And uh, one day I was hanging on the slab with my friends, and these other students came up and said, hey, come here, I want to show you something. I said, okay. So I followed these guys. And they took me to some side steps that, you know, led up to the slab. And I said, hey, we dare you to grab this handrail and also touch this light pole at the same time. And there's a metal handrail, of course. And I'm like, yeah, I might have been born at night. It just wasn't last night, you know? And uh, no, I'm not doing this. And they just kept persisting. You know, yeah, just do it, just do it. Nothing's going to happen. And after a while, I started to think, they're being real persistent. What if they're just messing with me just to see how I'm going to react? So I thought, okay, well, I'll do this, you know? And so I, I grabbed this handrail, and I reached out to the light pole. And the second I touched it, bam, electricity coursing through my body. This thing wasn't grounded, all right? And so these guys had successfully convinced me that two unrelated objects had nothing to do with each other. When in reality, when I took a live source of electricity and the grounding and touched them together, they came together and made a very powerful effect, right? And so uh, after the tingly sensation wore off, you know what I did? I went and found another kid and said, hey, I want to show you something. <laughs> you know, there are times in our lives when people will try to convince us that two objects, two stories, two situations, two people are opposed or unrelated, when in reality, they actually go together. In the same way, one of the biggest deceptions floating around is that science and faith are opposed, that Christianity and science are unrelated. They're separate. They're at war with one another. And it leads people to ask, what about Christianity and science? Is Christianity anti-science? The answer is no. Christianity being anti-science and science being anti-Christian is a false narrative. It's not true. And it's been a lie that for about two centuries has increased in volume and has been widely accepted by people without really looking into the arguments. Even some Christians just surrender when they hear this and go, oh, okay, I guess that's the way it is. And we get intimidated by science and we accept the lie. When in reality, Christianity and science are very compatible, and when they come together, something powerful can happen. And it's, it's, a, it's a lie that's been increasing over the time, and it's not even accepted by people who aren't even Christians. For example, historian David Lindbergh says, historians agree that science versus religion story is a 19th century fabrication. Oxford professor Alison McGrath says the idea that science and religion are in perpetual conflict is no longer taken seriously by any major historian of science. So we don't really have a faith versus science issue. We have a worldview versus worldview issue. Science is neutral. The presuppositions that a person comes to science with and the conclusions that we walk away from science with are influenced or determined by our worldview. And so a person can love Jesus and love science at the same time. And a person uh, with no faith can engage science and actually have them lead them to faith, which happens often. And so I want to take you to a portion of scripture in the Bible that will help us see this play out a little bit better. So open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we're going to look today at verses 16 through 25. Romans 1, 16 through 25. So fire up your Bible apps, open your Bibles and get there. 
Once there, here's what you're going to find. For I, this is the Apostle Paul that God's using to write this, writing to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been, what? Made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became fuel in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, we receive a lot of understanding at face value reading through this text, but I want to look a little closer because in these verses, we first encounter faith. We encounter faith. Look again at verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel means good news. We can summarize it that heaven, forgiveness, relationship with God is a free gift. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something we deserve. We don't get to it through good works, good behavior. We understand that the humanity is sinful, that we choose to do wrong with our words, our actions, our thoughts by default, and that we can't rescue our own selves. And although that God loves us, uh, he also is a righteous God, a just God, and has to punish sin. And so the consequences for us would be eternity apart from God in hell. And so God remedied the situation through his son, Jesus Christ, who was 100% man and 100% God. And because of that, he lived the perfect life we could never live, and he died the sacrificial death that we could never die, that we should have died, and he rose from the grave and conquered death and sin. And when we understand that, we place our faith in Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. That's the summary of this gospel. And of this gospel, we believe it's the power of God that saves souls for every person who professes belief. And when you have belief, you have faith because you have to have faith or trust in Jesus and who he is and what he did. And so we see this faith. Now, uh, what we see here is this gospel is originating from a Jewish context, but God has expanded it to all people of the world. And so God has revealed himself to all of mankind. He's revealed his love, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness to us. And so we walk in that understanding with faith. Look again at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's from the faith that we place that gives us the faith to walk. And it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so the righteous, those who pursue God and who pursue a life, live to please God, are going to live in faith, walk by faith. And our faith isn't in something. It's in someone. It's very important. And so our faith is in Christ. And this is not a blind faith, a blind hope, a kind of I hope this happens. 
This faith we're talking about is a certainty in our heart. It's a certainty in our spirit that what God has revealed to us is true. And this faith is rooted in an unwavering belief and hope that we confidently believe in what God has said about what was, what is, and what's going to be. And so this is this faith we have. And faith is spiritual. It's supernatural. And in the false narrative of faith versus science, those who might find themselves leaning all the way to the side of faith, and that sounds like this, you know, why do you believe what you believe? I just have faith. Well, what, what kind of reasoning can you give? That's my only reason. I have faith, okay? If those people that lean all the way on that side, they say there's no need for science because believing is all we need. And belief is all that we need to make something true. Well, we know believing in something to make it true is not the best way to express things. And although I agree with the sentiment of the phrase, yes, we have to have faith, ultimately what it does is it villainizes science. And it devalues the support and the reason, the evidence that science actually brings our faith. And God has provided evidence, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Then we find those who lean on the other side completely, science only. And they say that faith is unnecessary, even silly, and that if you can't touch it, you can't measure it, you can't observe it, then it doesn't matter. And in that mindset, faith is devalued. Yet in reality, everybody has faith. Everybody, uh, even atheists, uh, believe in something. They might believe in their own reasoning. They're placing their faith in themselves, their reasoning, their thinking, their logic, their own conclusions. So we all have faith. So faith is actually experienced by all of us, but it's the source of our faith that matters most. It's the source and object of our faith that distinguishes us. And so we have faith in Jesus, the Jesus of this gospel. And so our faith, of course, is not without reason or evidence. And next we encounter evidence. Look again at verse 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them. We can even say us, right? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. We can pick up on it. We can make an observation and come to a conclusion based on what God's provided. Ever since the creation, the creation, a moment of time when something came to be, the creation of the world and in the things that have been made. And then it says we're without excuse. See, Romans 1 here is declaring that our faith is both related to internal belief as well as external observations, and that they work together. And when these two seemingly unrelated things come together, something powerful happens. And so God has not shrouded himself. He's made his presence very clear and obvious for humanity. His character, his power, his nature is on display through all he's created. And when we look at the way God's revealed himself, we put it in two groupings. Some of you are familiar with this terminology. One grouping is general revelation. And that's what Romans 1 is speaking to, this general revelation that God communicates his existence and his power and his glory to all people of all time through that which he's made, through that which is natural. And so even like the songs that we just sang about walking through the hills and looking at the stars, that's us looking at what's been made going, this is not a random chance, someone made this, and that leads us down a path to find that person who's God, who's made himself findable, all right? General revelation. And then there's special revelation. God takes it a step further and communicates his plan for forgiveness of sins. He communicates his plan for salvation. He communicates his plans for the hope that we can have through supernatural means. And so the coming of Jesus, who was both God and man, uh, the giving of his word. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about how, you know, why we believe in this word, 
right? That we can look at the spiritual, supernatural, historical, archaeological, you know, prophetic and eyewitness evidence to go, this is, this is a supernatural book that we hold. And so we look at how God's revealed himself through the Holy Spirit, his son, his word, and given us even more special revelation. But God has made himself known by what he's created. He's made it plain to us. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so everything we see, everything we experience, everything we encounter is designed to point us to God. And as we take in all of creation with our senses, as we look at creation through microscopes and telescopes, and even use the scientific method to test, observe, and interact with what God's made, it all shouts that there's a God who made it and holds it together. And this God has also made himself known through his son and through his word. And people can see this. It draws people to the Lord. Robert Jastrow is an agnostic astronomer and physicist. He says on this topic, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak and he's pulled himself over the final rock. He's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> Meaning that as God's revealed himself as, as, as people who engage theology in the study of God, we, we get a quick study of this stuff. We don't get bogged down and then science becomes our friend to explain what God has made and how it works and all those things. So there's no conflict between science and scripture. No scientific find has ever disproved God. We've never seen something, wow, look how that works. Well, there's no God. No scientific find ever will disprove God. Even when the theories seem to point toward more man-centric solutions, it still doesn't actually disprove God. And so it can actually be argued that science gives us greater evidence for God. Because when we look at creation, and we look at things through scientific means, we see complexity, we see design, we see systems, we see structures, we see order. This relates to what's called the teleological argument. This is an argument for God that because there's design in the natural world, there must be a designer. And the designer can clearly be perceived from the things that have been made. And what I love as we press into this is that God does not forbid us from investigating what's been made. He said, exactly, amen, Lord. <laughs> Timing is awesome. He is saying that we can find him through what's been made. This sounds like permission and an invitation to do science. Like even look, for those of you who love science, love this kind of stuff we're talking about, I'm going to give you one of your new favorite verses, all right? Psalm 111, 2. It says, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Great, that means vast. God's work is vast. It's studied, it's explored, it's looked into by those in awe of his handiwork. So when we look at all of our ologies, biology, cosmology, archaeology, anthropology, and all the likes, it helps us clearly perceive God from the things that have been made. And so we get knowledge about God by what's been created by God. Even the word science itself actually comes from the Latin word scientia, which means know or knowledge. And so as we engage science, we learn knowledge about what God has made, about God himself from the branches of study that exist to explain the natural world we live in. And as mankind does science and gains knowledge, he starts to perceive clearly God. And God starts to get bigger and bigger, not smaller and smaller. So God uses the study of his creation to draw people to himself. Listen to what Einstein said. He says, I want to know how God created this world. 
I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are details. Like that's, that's the heart of someone who's a believer that still loves science. And history is full of highly intelligent men and women who embrace science. They practice science. They love science, but they also love the Lord. Alan Rex Sandage, which is considered to be one of the greatest astronomers of the 20th century, who converted to Christianity, said this. He said, it was my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than explained by science. It is only through the supernatural that I can understand the mystery of existence. These are people that engage science at a far different level than any of us ever probably have. You know, many of the world's most renowned universities even were uh, started by people who are both deep thinkers and deeply religious. Many Christians started these universities. This even applies to the longstanding prestigious University of Oxford. Do you know what Oxford's motto is? The Lord is my light. It's a little strange from that one, you know? And so claiming that those who engage science while simultaneously holding to a belief in God or the Christian faith means that you're ignorant or that you're intellectual because this is the you know, script that's being played out, you're going to have to take people like Copernicus and Bacon and Kepler and Galileo and Pascal and Da Vinci and Newton and say they're all unintelligent people. They're unintellectual. And we know that's so far from the truth. And I even know in a church this size, like I hear about what some of you do. We've got people even in our church body that love science and love Jesus. We've got NASA engineers and physicists and medical staff and biochemists and all these things. In fact, let me just take a quick poll. Uh, How many of you are in here this morning? How many of you have a great engagement of science in your education or your vocation? All right, there's a bunch of you in here. Yeah. And so you're you're like, yeah, you're talking my language. (laughs) You know, although science is by far not my expertise, Man, I just love what I learn and how it points to God when I start to roll up my sleeves and get into some of this stuff. Like, just a few things that have given me substance and support to my faith as I engage science, like paleontology, study of fossils, okay? So I went to public school as a kid all my life, all right? So I, all the textbooks, the, you know, the progression, all that stuff, we all started from a single cell organism that over millions and millions and millions of years progressed to all the millions of species. We have millions of species in existence right now. All started from one cell. That's, that's, what, that's what that was taught, right? And all of a sudden, at one point in time, I'm going, wait a minute, did I just hear that right? So there's all the strata. We've been digging it since our existence, and there's supposed to be thousands, if not millions of fossils then that are half one species and half another, half cow, half whale, right? Half this, half that. When you actually get into paleontology and look for fossils that are any transitional species of any nature, guess how many they find? Zero. Zero. Zero fossils of one species transcending into another. I'm going, okay, so why am I supposed to believe what you're telling me? Because this science actually backs up a creation account. And so you start to roll up your sleeves and look at that, and they know it. Harvard paleontologist and atheist. Stephen J. Gold says, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of the branches. The rest is inference. They know it. So get into science because it actually supports your faith. I love what we can find in biology, especially when you study the cells. I geek out with some of this stuff, you know? And when you look at what Darwin discovered, when Darwin was looking through a microscope, man, he had a whopping 200 to 300 magnification lens on that bad boy, right? 
And so when he looked through a simple cell, that's what we call a simple cell. There's this little blobby thing. It's got a membrane. There's a little squishy thing in the middle. Yeah, it's pretty cool, simple cell. Well, microscopes have evolved since then. In fact, the greatest electron microscope now can magnify things, I think, over like 200 million times or something crazy like that. It's, it's huge, uh, 2 million times. And what's been found is far from simple, right? When we look at cells, we see they're like little factories. They've got systems and controls and language and mechanisms. Even the study of DNA alone and how it, it changes and the length of the strands and the, the, the miles of information in just one DNA strand is just mind-blowing. And so even non-Christian scientists look at these types of biological findings and say, there's no way that it happened by chance, even if you take billions of years to try to accomplish it. Skeptic and chemist Robert Shapiro was asked, what are the chances that DNA could have formed randomly over time? He said, none. He says, and the idea is absolute nonsense. This guy's not even a believer. You know? And so we, just, we can look at this stuff and feel confident. When you look at cosmology, and when you think about the perfect positioning of Earth in our solar system. And that it just so happened that we're the perfect distance from the sun so we don't burn up or freeze, that our orbit rotation speed is just right so we don't burn up and freeze, and that we're also the perfect distance from Jupiter because if we were a little bit more to Jupiter, a little bit more to the sun, we'd get pulled in different directions. So we just happen to be perfectly placed, a perfectly rotation with a moon that's also perfectly placed in rotation and distance from the earth that helps with our axis and our tilt so we can have the seasons and sustainable life. And there's no way this is a cosmic coincidence. You look at what God has made, and it points to him. We can clearly perceive. And the more we look through our microscopes, and the more we look through our telescopes, we see evidence of God. And now we understand what we see in verse 20, that man is without excuse. That literally means without a defense. We have no defense to say there's no God. And here's the kicker. Here's the most amazing part of this. This holy, mighty, awesome, creative God wants to be in relationship with you and me and that he loves us and that he's planned for eternity a place. Like we geek out on the earth. God's got eternity set. Heavens, like this is gonna be mind-blowing what God has waiting for us. And so he's made everything. He didn't leave it alone. He invites us into relationship and interacts with us. And so do we think God is afraid of science? Do we think Christians should be afraid of science? No. Science gives us evidence for our belief in God and increases our understanding of what he's made so that we can trust him and find him as he's revealed himself to us. So then, why the false narrative? Why the lie? Because as we move through this passage, we encounter faith and we encounter evidence and then we encounter a problem. And here's the problem if you look at verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, because they're unrighteous, because of sin, suppress the truth. Romans 1 is saying there's no lack of evidence of God. There's a suppression of evidence for God at the effort of man. That's the problem. And so God is justified in his anger that out of our sinfulness and out of our desire to rebel against God, there's this intentional suppression of what can be known about God. And God has made it clear that man will know in his spirit that there is a God when he looks at what's been revealed. But that's going to be suppressed. Why is it suppressed? It's driven by sin. It's driven by a spirit of self-sufficiency. It's driven especially by a desire not to be accountable to God. 
We would rather exchange the knowledge of God for a lie and call it wisdom and call it intelligence than to submit to God. And this is what we see when God says in verses 21 and 22, look at those in your Bible, that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became fuel in the thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Do you see how grievous this language is? That when we reject God, it's, it's futility. And there's a darkness that takes over hearts. This is language that captures man's intentional resistance and rejection of God. God gives man free will, and man says, thank you, peace out, we don't need you anymore, God. We got this, and we're going to do it our way. And then you have, like, for example, in the last couple decades, famous atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris that have raised the volume on the view that science in general and specifically evolutionary science has made belief in God unnecessary, obsolete, and delusional. And so this is why I said earlier that this isn't a Christian and science issue. This is a worldview issue. And just for a refresher, a worldview is a philosophical view and perspective on everything that exists. It's your most fundamental beliefs regarding the big questions of human existence, who we are, where we came from, why we're here, what's the purpose of life, what's the nature of the afterlife. That's, that's the questions that we're trying to answer. You know, Aldous Huxley, who's a writer and intellectual, said, modern science makes it impossible to believe in a personal God. His science didn't come to that conclusion. His worldview came to that conclusion. His philosophy came to that conclusion. And so science isn't anti-God. Atheism is anti-God. Humanism is anti-God. Secularism is anti-God. And so science from those perspectives then will become anti-God, which is interesting because science is about facts, but it's the philosophy that determines how you interpret those facts. And everyone funnels what they find through scientific means through their worldview. Everybody has a faith position. Everybody has beliefs and philosophies about how we can interpret and engage reality. And so your faith position determines your science, not the other way around. And so the problem happens when those wearing glasses, tempted by humanism, atheism, secularism, profess that science is the only truth we can know. And so we're in trouble. And there's a problem when man's reason, not God's revelation, becomes our authority. And this is humanity kicking God out of their hearts and their minds. We see it expressed this way in verse 23. That man exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now that's specifically speaking to idol worship, right? That we know when we study cultures, even cultures today, that people are carving gods, little g, out of stone and wood. They've been doing it for centuries. And, and they're making things that look like man or animals or something that God created, and they're worshiping them. And they're bowing down to them, and they're sacrificing to them, and they're trusting in them for you know, prosperity, wealth, health, all that stuff. And we go, how silly is that? How silly is it to carve a piece of wood like you know, a dog and then like pray to it? That, that doesn't make any sense. But it's the same thing when we take the creature man, and we elevate him above God and say, what man knows is the authority. And all that man can conclude is the authority. And so therefore, uh, science and, and what man can come will come together, and that's the reality, and nothing else matters. That's creature worship. It's worshiping man. And we're exchanging the truth of God for a lie, and we're starting to worship the creature over the creator. 
It's worship of self. And that's at the heart of humanism and secularism. And again, the reason at the core is rejection of God. It's rejection of authority. It's rejection of accountability. Just, just walk through that. If there's no God, then there's no law. And there's no law, there's no morality. There's no moral boundary. And so there's no law, no morality, no boundaries. The man can do whatever he pleases. Have we come to the place where we can maybe in unity agree that when man decides what's good and bad, and when man decides what's right and wrong, when man decides who has value and who doesn't, that's a very slippery slope and it's dangerous? And that's, that's the product of kicking God out. And so it's this worldview that's pushing that. Pastor and theologian Warren Wiersbe says, if man is his own God, then he can do whatever he pleases and fulfill his desires without fear of judgment. That's at the root. If I, don't have, if I can erase God, then I erase accountability, and I don't have to be accountable, there's going to be a lot of people, and I say this sadly, I don't say this with joy, there's going to be a lot of people that when this life is over are going to have a rude awakening to realize we're very accountable to God. Because we're all going to stand before him face to face and have to answer for what we did in this life. And we don't want to be on the wrong end of this. And we see the outcome, verse 24, right? God gave them up. He says, you want that freedom? All right, I'm going to let you eat the fruit of that tree. And so he gave them up to the lust of their hearts and to their impurity and to the dishonor of their bodies. And it's scary to see the results of what happened when mankind decides what's important. It's no wonder why the family units disintegrated. It's no wonder why we have increased violence and, and racism and ter terrorism and sexual confusion and where a society has redefined tolerance to mean you can't say what's right and wrong. And we're like a government funds the killing of babies and does nothing to rescue them. I mean, these are just a few examples of what happens when science is monopolized by godless voices saying that we're all random accidents here by chance. So our human sin nature is so desirous to be free of God that we're willing to become anti-intellectual, to believe in theories that have huge holes, that are inference-based, that lead to moral and social evils. And this is all the outcome of what God has said would be the darkened heart. And when we cross that line, what happens is that we've exchanged the truth of God, we know, with the lie for which we prefer. Let me say that again. When we cross this line, we exchange the truth of God, which we know in our spirit, for the lie that we prefer because it meets our preferences. And ironically and sadly, as man proclaims that he's climbing upward, in reality, he's spiraling downward. So science isn't a problem. It's when sinful beings take science and twist it into a religion that we see a problem. Then that which deals with observable, measurable, reproducible, and experimental practices is hijacked to exclusively determine origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And at that point in time, we're no longer dealing with science, but with philosophy and religion. And so science is not a threat to Christianity. And Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Now, we know that there are some people who profess the Christian faith who are negative towards science. That's a mistake. They need to learn and grow and appreciate science. But for the most part, Christians who appreciate reason and evidence and support for the faith find a very good friend in science. And those who are negative toward the faith need to come to terms that not everything can be touched or measured or understood, and at some point, faith comes online for belief, where the physical leaves off, and we need to deal with the spiritual. But you have to have the eyes to see that. We're saying that, open the eyes of my heart, right? 
In 1 Corinthians 2.14, God tells us the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Open the eyes of my heart is a great prayer. Like when we don't get something, like God, open my eyes. Let me get it. Lord, help me interpret this correctly according to a way that pushes me towards you, not away from you. And so the things that we're talking about, faith and trust and belief, eternity, forgiveness, sin, they're spiritually discerned. You're not going to put that in a test tube. God has created our spirit to have a resonance in it when we hear spiritual things. And so we have to embrace the faith element. And so it's faith plus, um, faith is reason plus revelation. And the revelation part requires one to think with the spirit as well as the mind. I heard one person put it this way. You have to hear the music, not just read the notes on the page. It's both. You know, the things of God have to be seen with the eyes of faith, but not to the exclusion of evidence, not without the support that God has given us by what he's made. And the sad reality is that people with a secular worldview have been convinced to see science as an enemy of faith instead of a friend. And so they're shooting themselves in their foot when they adopt it because that belief doesn't help us uh, quench that desire to love and to be loved and to find meaningful relationships and to find purpose in life and experience a sense of belonging this exclusive view of science only still fails to answer the questions and some of our biggest needs. So our responsibility is to reject and to reverse the false narrative that Christianity and science are at war. They're not. They actually go together very well, and when they do, something powerful happens. There's a man named Francis Collins. He's a physician geneticist. He was a devout scientific atheist, and his science and research of DNA, as well as the faith that he saw of his dying patients, came together and led him to the conclusion that there is indeed a divine creator. And he eventually converted from atheism to Christianity. He is now the director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, and he basically what he does for his job, he decodes DNA. He's a brilliant dude. He wrote a book calling DNA the Language of God. This is what he says on this issue of faith and science. He says, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful, and it cannot be at war with itself. Only we imperfect humans can start such battles, and only we can end them. And so we have to engage this Christianity versus science lie, because it's a false narrative. It's an entrenched theme. It's an inaccurate caricature. It's a misleading script written by those from a secular mindset. And it portrays people of faith as anti-intellectual, weak, and superstitious. So we need to reject it and reverse it. Well, how do you do that? Well, first, let me ask you this. When you think about a spectrum, one side being faith only, one side being science only, kind of where do you fall? And if you tilt a little bit more towards your faith, here's my challenge to you today. Use science to back your faith. Like roll up your sleeves and learn some of the things, like the stuff I was sharing earlier about paleontology and biology and cosmology and whatever ology you have a knack for, you know? Because science supports your faith. I encourage you to just look at some creation-based sites. In the next couple of days, I'm going to get a blog up with just a bunch of sites that we recommend to go and find some research that might be interesting to you from a creation perspective. And look at the compelling evidence found in creation. And start to add 
scientific-based arguments to why you believe what you believe. It's perfectly appropriate to do so. Also, if you lean heavy to the science side, maybe you've kind of devalued faith. My encouragement to you is find faith through your science. Science will point you to God unless your heart refuses to see and believe and spiritually discern. And so for those of you who are more scientific-minded, maybe these are good questions for you to ask yourself. What does your scientific findings teach you about God? What does uh, your scientific findings teach you about his love and his grace and his sovereignty? How does it reinforce the Bible and who Jesus is and what he's done? And start to dig there because you'll find discoveries there as well. And for some of you, you're sitting here and you're thinking, this is all great and fine, but I'm really distracted right now by what's going on in my life. Like I'm in turmoil, there's things going on. Or maybe you're sitting here going, actually life's smooth and I have everything the world says I need to be happy, but I'm not happy. And there's emptiness. Could it be possible that like we've talked about today, you've exchanged what God wants you to know for something that you've believed in that's a lie. And you're buying a lie that you've told yourself, you're buying a lie that someone else has told you and you've exchanged that. And you're not walking in what God has made known, you're not believing what God's made known, or maybe you haven't come to know what God's made known. And again, it's not something, it's someone. And the way God's revealed himself also is through his son, Jesus. And so as you search for meaning, as you search for purpose, as you search for value and all these things, you've got to turn to the Lord and how he's not just given general revelation, but then press into his special revelation, the supernatural revelation that he's provided for you. And so God loves you enough to give you another chance to come back to him, to hear and believe in this gospel. We kind of go right back to where we started, this gospel that saves those who believe, this God who loves, this God who judges, this God who provides a way to him. And today, I'm going to give you a chance that during our time, you can just say, Lord, I don't have all the answers to my questions, but I know enough. I know I need you. So I'm coming to you in faith right now. And you can make that profession of faith as we continue in worship. I love this song we're going to close with here in a minute because it really is a progressive song that just talks about how God is seen in everything he's made from the moment of creation and how it's displayed even through the cross. And it's just a beautiful way to express, interact, and engage this understanding that faith and science aren't opposed. They actually complement each other very well. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are creator, you are master, you are father. You've made everything to glorify yourself. Everything that exists is pointing to you. And so, Father, we confess there's times that we have bought the lie that maybe it's something else or you're not there. Lord, we confess that there's moments that we have doubt and we have questioning. Father, help us navigate through that, not just with what you've made in creation, Lord, but specifically what you've told us in your word and how you've revealed yourself at a whole other level, at a supernatural level. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ right now. Lord, I pray that as, as they listen to today and as we've gone through this passage, Lord, that if they've been erring by thinking too much about science, that you bring them back to a place of trust and belief and faith in who you are and what you've done that's supernatural. And Father, for anyone who's maybe too faith-heavy, Lord, that they've discounted, that we can look at what you've made and celebrate and rejoice. Father, bring them back to that. Let them embrace the exploration of what you made. Let them find great joy and awe in it. And Lord, I pray for anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with you, that God, today they'll take that first step, that they'll do more exploring. Lord, that they'll start asking questions. They'll start talking to their Christian friends or just read some stuff about you based in evidence. 
And God, I pray that uh, they'll come to know you as Savior, whether that's today or in the future. So God, take us as your creation. Use us to glorify you and help others find you. May we be part of what you've uh, created to help others plainly see who you are. In Jesus' name, we all said together, amen. As we prepare to worship, uh, you have a response card in your program. If you are taking a step toward faith today, whether you're coming to Christ for the first time or you just got some questions you want to talk about, would you fill out that response card? Mark coming to Christ if you're professing faith today. Maybe write a question or, hey, get in touch with me. Turn those in and the baskets to come by here in a little bit, and we'd love to get in touch with you and help you grow or answer some questions you have. Let's stamp and let's worship.